from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Greetings, everyone. Uh, to the show, we welcome you back. Yoda, is that you? Frank Oz? I gotta, <clears throat> um, <laughs> no, excuse me. Sorry. I, just, <laughs> I shouldn't have had so much cheese in my I, eggs today. <laughs> <It's a> little. <clears throat> they got in my throat. A little winter weather in Georgia. Give me your best... Um, Give me your give me an, an an adjective today, but give it to me in Wookie. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a Wookie. What a terrible Wookie. What a Wookie. That's what <laughs> I would say. That Wookie is like dying under a car or something. <laughs> that that Wookie is like <laughs> Or Wookie is just no, begging for like, help, just asking to be put out of its misery. Yes. Oh, man. Hey, Star Wars fans. <laughs> <laughs> they all turned this off already. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
they heard part one and they were they like, like, nope, no. <laughs> block this content from my feed. I'm so glad to have you all back for part two. Yeah. George and Marsha Lucas. Um, what, a, what a pair. This should be a trilogy, really. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't it? Yeah, it really mm, would. Could have been then... like a new hope of them getting married. Oh, and yeah. And then like an Empire Strikes Back, which is this episode. Yeah. And then the, the, the Return of the Jedi would be... Maybe they haven't made uh, that story yet. They haven't made yet. that part yet. Yeah, they, we'll, they we'll tell that story one day. Have a nice reunion or something. Yeah, yeah. One day when that happens, we'll tell it. Right. And, and he then... finally tells her he loves her, and she's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> And then we'll be able to go back and do the stories of their parents in like a three-part prequel. Oh, perfect. Um, and then, and then we'll be, and then we'll do individual episodes all about just random like people random. who just came into their life for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do a whole spin-off series of that. You get the joke. I'm paralleling Star Wars. <laughs> blah blah blah. Let's get to it. <laughs> you get it. I bored myself in the middle of that joke. That's like, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm done. over this. <laughs> oh, <Lordy. laughs> happens a lot. <laughs> I know, right? All right. Well, then, yeah, let's just jump into part yes, two yes. of this amazing, crazy power couple. Yeah. Um, in part one, we learned how Marsha Griffin and George Lucas got their start in movie making, how they met and fell in love, and how instrumental she was in the success of his movies, American Graffiti and Star Wars. And when we left them, Star Wars had just opened and immediately became the highest grossing movie of all time. And Steven Spielberg beat it five years later with E.T. Mm-hmm. But five years of being the biggest movie of all time is pretty, yeah. pretty great. Yeah. And Marsha and George were planning to quit this crazy old movie business, settle down, and have kids. Marsha told People magazine in the summer of 1977, quote, Getting our private life together and having a baby. That is the project for the rest of this year. I mean, you can't be any more clear than that right. about what your priorities are. <laughs> True. So let's jump in and find out how that project worked out perfectly for everyone involved. <laughs> I'm picking up on your sarcasm. Let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second, A production of iHeartRadio. Well, that whole plan about having a baby and everything was quickly derailed when they learned that George was sterile. What a way to start an episode. I know, right? (laughs) Ooh. So yeah, they would never be able to have like a child together, which must have really hit Marsha pretty hard because again, she'd been talking about this for several years. It had been her main plan for their life was to have a baby and now they couldn't have one. So that was probably really painful. Um, And they did talk about adoption, but neither of them was ready to go through that whole process because it is a whole process. It's a process, Paperwork and everything. Yep. So George turned his attention to his dream project, building his own studio, Skywalker Ranch. With that loose collaborative film school vibe that he'd been looking for. Yeah. And he and Coppola had similar aspirations about this studio that they wanted to exist. Mm -hmm. And that's why they had started American Zoetrope together years before. This time, though, George was like, I've got the money and the clout now to actually make this a reality and a success. And so he turned his powerhouse film, Star Wars, into a franchise. And he planned for eight sequels to cover the facility's overhead. And he sunk most of his millions of dollars of earnings off of Star Wars into buying real estate in Marin County, California. But it seems like he just kept telling Marsha and himself 
that he was trying to slow down and take a step back. <laughs> yeah. Which is so funny how you lie to yourself. You know oh, what I mean? Definitely. And it's like so obvious that you're lying to yourself to everyone else. <laughs> but he's like, no, no, no. I know that I'm starting a huge ambitious project. But what I'm really trying to do is relax. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's tough because when you've got to invest in your future in order to relax, yeah. like sometimes you have to work really hard and it's it can be very difficult to tell the difference mm-hmm. of am I doing that thing where I say I'm doing this so that I can stop? Or am I doing that thing where I'm just going to keep saying that and keep working forever and ever and ever and never actually stop? Yeah. Because it is easy to fall into that pattern of, well, there's always something. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean you can just walk away and say, well, then never mind. I won't do it all the work because yeah. you still have to. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky situation. I have found myself in it, uh, not to George Lucas's scale, but uh, <laughs> but in my own way several well, times. Well, especially in Hollywood, I think, because yeah. you're so much, you could be the darling one minute and yeah. then the next minute everyone forgot all about you and right. you have no, no one's answering your calls. Yeah. So I think that was part of it for George Lucas is that he's like, great, my movie's done really well. I need to capitalize on that as much as I can while right. it's still big. Exactly. And then once it inevitably crumbles to nothing, I'll still have you know, a career yeah. and something to fall back on and stuff. So that can be really hard, too, to know when you're safe, yeah. I guess, in Hollywood. Well, that's that's one of those things, too, that I think we're learning more about Hollywood as yeah. we, like like I said last episode, like you know, we've all got a celebrity podcast we listen to or yeah. you follow people on Instagram and stuff. But if you get the real, um, di- get down into the real personal details of that industry, every job is a gig. And you're mm-hmm. always in danger. I don't care who you are up to a certain level. Uh, you're always in danger of not having work anymore. Yeah. Um, and at any point you could have a billion dollar box office and then the next day you got nothing. Yeah. Well, it's like so many of our historical stories were like, oh, this actor at the time was like this huge deal and yeah. everybody loved it. I never heard never of him. Never heard of him. None of that work lasted. Right. But at the time he was the cat's pajamas or yeah. whatever, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, he was still telling Marsha, they were both telling each other, you know, we want to take a step back. We want to relax. Right. We worked nonstop for years. Let's try to be together and mm-hmm. just have a lovely home life. And so maybe in a nod to that, he did hire Irvin Kirchner to direct The Empire Strikes Back. And he took Marsha on a vacay to Mexico. Finally, a little time to relax. (laughs) But when the screenwriter for Empire unexpectedly passed away, he ended up spending most of that vacation in the hotel room writing the script. So even his vacation turned into a work trip. Man, you know, it's like the best laid plans Mm -hmm. of mice and men (laughs) often go awry. I just made that up. Wow, that's Um, very deep. That was from me, yeah. I don't know where mice came into it, but... Well, you know, it's just like anybody. Like, you might be George Lucas, you might be a little mouse. Uh, (laughs) And you can have all the plans in the world. shit's gonna go wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but in 1978, a triumph came for the Lucases when Star Wars was nominated for, count them, 11 Academy Awards. And it won six. Yeah. More than half. Pretty good. And within those six included... Best editing. Yeah. Marsha, Richard, and Paul all walked home with Oscar statues that night. It was a career high for Marsha. And side note, while the 11 Star Wars films that have come out as of today have garnered 37 Oscar nominations altogether over the years, it's notable that none of the movies after A New Hope were given the best editing nomination until The Force Awakens came out. 
Okay. So what does that say? Yeah, seems like Marsha was was pulling her weight there. Mm-hmm. She's doing some work. Now she seems to have been pretty happy with the culmination of her career because she didn't really work much afterwards. Scorsese had been her main employer, but he was in a lull after New York, New York didn't do much business. Also, Scorsese and his eyebrows seem to have been <laughs> pretty preoccupied with his cocaine addiction. You gotta do more, Marty. More. We can't. We can't keep up with this crazy business. Don't do it, Marty. Your nose is bleeding. You gotta stop. Screw your nose. You can. You can buy another nose. Stevie Nicks had a hole in her nose. She's still fine. Oh man. Oh, I gotta bring Stevie into this. <laughs> Um, no, but his cocaine addiction actually had gotten so bad that it caused internal bleeding for him. Mm-hmm. Robert De Niro actually went to Scorsese in the hospital and asked him, you know, do you, do you want to live or do you want to die, right. Marty? Like, you, you got to talk talking to me. I want you to be talking to me. Uh, you <laughs> I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, you're killing yourself here with all this. If, if you want to live... Then get up, clean yourself up, and let's make a movie. De Niro had given him a book about a middleweight wrestler years ago, and they decided that they were going to do this. Scorsese got up, said, yes, I'm ready to live. Let's make Raging Bull. And so in 1980, they started working on that movie. But Scorsese went with a different editor. Her name was Thelma Schoonmaker. And that's the editor that Scorsese has used ever since. Now, Marsha, at this time, grudgingly did some editing on more American Graffiti, which was the sequel. Mm -hmm. Um, That was in 1979. But she turned down Eleanor Coppola's offer to edit her documentary, Hearts of Darkness. Eleanor told author John Baxter, quote, she worked hard for so many years without stopping that she just wanted to stay home for a while. But George was working harder than ever. The Empire Strikes Back production ended up weeks behind schedule, millions of dollars over budget. Mm. Um, He fussed with the final cut, but that just made it worse than it had come to him. (laughs) He ended up worse than ever. Who let George touch this? (laughs) They're like, oh. So Irvin Kirshner had to re-re-edit it. And Kaminsky says that Marsha's often thought to have edited this movie without getting any credit at all, but his feeling is that she probably limited her involvement to just like giving feedback, and she didn't actually do any cutting of the film. Um, Which I'm glad to hear, because if she did cut Empire and get zero mention, that would be really fucked up. (laughs) George was so stressed out by this production that he was back to experiencing anxiety-induced chest pains. He even developed an ulcer, Mm. so this guy is like working himself to death. Empire opened in 1980, It was so successful that Lucasfilm was starting to rival Disney. (gasps) Whoa! And that just spurred George into more and more work. Like, he even... Right. The more money he got, it it was like, I need to do more instead of less. Yeah. Which is, Marsha had totally opposite reaction. She's like, now we're good, right? We're good. But you look at that. You can't build an enormous corporate empire Mm -hmm. and then say oh good now it's enormous i'm done yeah you know that doesn't work for your shareholders for real (laughs) i mean it's just so true that when a project gets you you turn around and suddenly it's too big for you you know what i mean it's its own thing it's got its own hands on its steering wheel at this point so yeah he he went straight into production on Raiders of the Lost Ark with Steven Spielberg. He began construction on Skywalker Ranch. And Lucasfilm also had to go through a corporate reorganization, which is like a huge, very tedious, yeah. annoying project. So George starts experiencing chronic headaches, dizziness. He's not well. And Marsha was his business partner. 
Life was no fun for her either. She's also working nonstop on production stuff, nothing fun, nothing creative. And as Michael Kaminsky writes in The Secret History of Star Wars, quote, she begged him to take a step back while their relationship still had a chance of surviving. Mm. So as early as 1980, she's already like, George, uh, I can't, this can't be Yeah, our this life. isn't going to work. I right. cannot live like this. Right. And George knew it was true. He told Dale Pollock, quote, I'm always real tired and cranky. It's been very hard on Marsha living with someone who is constantly in agony, uptight and worried off in Never Never Land. So he he acknowledged it and he decided, you know what? To hell with those eight sequel ideas that I had before. Huh. My contract with Fox is for three Star Wars movies. I've made two. I'm going to make one more Star Wars movie. We're going to finish construction on Skywalker Ranch. And then we're going to settle down and enjoy the fruits of our labor. That's it. Period. End of George Lucas's career. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to make one more Star Wars movie and I'm going to make it goofy as hell. <laughs> I'm talking teddy bears in the forest. I'm talking bringing back the Death Star. Mm-hmm. It's going to be nuts. <laughs> Also, a quick side note, just want to say if if you're not familiar with Skywalker Ranch, mm-hmm. uh, it's this film studio that Lucas built up in Northern California, like in, around out around outside San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, out in the wilderness. It's this gorgeous, green, lush, rolling hills, mm-hmm. this enormous mansion mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, it, it just workspaces all around. I mean, if you go there, I've never been, but <laughs> if you go there, I, I imagine it's just this incredible retreat that's sort of in between corporate Hollywood energy and just like chill, you know, fantasy mm-hmm. work vibes. I'm in a paradise kind of thing. Like totally. It sounds, sounds awesome. Yeah, they have like a man-made lake. Uh-huh. I, I mean, it's a really beautiful campus. And you can see what they were trying to accomplish is basically we want the little house that we all lived in together. And uh-huh. We had all these creatives in every corner doing all this wild shit. We want that, but like it's bigger. That's yeah. it, you know. But when you, when you get bigger, you get bigger. It changes. Right, it right. changes everything. And I guess just taking a second to go to go to relate to this personally too. I mean, again, we we've we've worked together mm-hmm. since before we were dating. Yeah. So we we've never known a life where we weren't creatively working together, That's uh, true. like George and Marsha. I mean, yeah. to some degree. Um, you know, fortunately, ours never came with that level of stress of like creating Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope one day it does, but... Uh, this is our Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I can totally appreciate the the battle here in a way mm-hmm. of, the, of, of sort of philosophies or just like how you want to live your life or what you think... Um, you know, your relationship is going to be like compared to your careers, because that's that's a really tough balance to strike, even for people who don't work together and just have like two different normal separate jobs. It can be difficult to balance yeah. careers and 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 romance and, and relationships. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't think I can imagine uh, comparing that to something as big as the Star Wars universe in the 80s. Right. You know. Well, and like, remember in part one, you know, we have Marsha who grew up super poor watching her right. mom trying to make ends meet. She really like her main goal is like, I just want to financially secure yeah. life. I don't really need to be a billionaire or something. Yeah. And she really liked cutting movies, but I don't think she wanted to work her whole life or anything. And then like George is like telling his family, I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. Like yeah. He had a totally different feeling for his life than she did. Yeah. And I think they kind of both were like, 
oh yeah, money is both important. We we both want to be successful and financially secure. But in his mind, it was like a much bigger goal than in her mind. I think I would argue that it even goes beyond the money because if you look at just what they wanted for just the jobs they were angling for, mm-hmm. she wanted to be an editor, which is literally the most invisible job yeah. there is. I don't want to be seen. Yeah, I want my name in the credits. I want recognition that my work is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I don't want to be famous. Mm-hmm. George wanted to be a filmmaker. He wanted people to know that, that to see his vision mm-hmm. and know he was responsible for it. He wanted the acknowledgement for what came out of his mind and onto the screen. Mm-hmm. And that those are two very different dynamics too. Uh, you know, I want to keep building. I want to be kind of a cinematic god to the common man. I want people to see me and think, "Holy shit, that's George Lucas." Yeah. Whereas she's she was not looking for that. Yeah. I don't think she's like, "I did my job. I got my check. Now I want to enjoy my check." Yeah. I, got <laughs> I don't need all the rest. Of right. That. Right. And not, you know, again, that's not putting a judgment on either one of those no, 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 no. Uh, those directions you want to go in. It's just you can see where they're incompatible in some ways. Mm-hmm. And well, and how they might have mistaken. Right. That there was a compatibility in those goals. Right. Where they're actually they were slightly different, you know, in very important ways. Right. So while Marsha wasn't really editing much anymore, she was still making George's movies better. At the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, spoiler alert. <laughs> Hope you've seen it. Uh, Indiana, if you haven't, stop. Press stop and go watch one of the best movies of all time. It's a classic. It's so good. At the end of Raiders, Indiana Jones delivers the Ark to Washington, and Marion is nowhere to be seen. That She's like the main female protagonist of this movie, and she just disappears after after everybody's faces melt. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Dale Pollack wrote, quote, Marsha watched the rough cut in silence, and then she leveled the boom. She said there was no emotional resolution to the ending because the girl disappears. Assistant film editor Dwayne Dunham remembers, quote, everyone was feeling pretty good until she said that. It was one of those, oh no, we lost sight of that. So Spielberg reshot the scene in downtown San Francisco, having Marion wait for Indiana Jones on the steps of the government building, and Marsha once again had come to the rescue. I love it. It's so it's so simple. Yeah. And it's that's also something that's so useful about having somebody who A knows what they're talking about uh-huh. and B was not involved. Because yeah. you know, you do lose sight. You you literally lose the forest for the trees yeah. when you're in the middle of a creative project. Definitely. And you're like, everything's great because everyone watching is going through the exact same thought process that I'm going through right. and I remember everything that was cut and every whatever. And she's like, I don't remember any I didn't know any of that shit. All I know is that I don't I'm wondering where the fuck Marion went. Yeah. <laughs> she's still in the desert with a bunch of Nazi skeletons right. or what? <laughs> And it wasn't just in the editing room. She helped George in other ways, too. He was such a workaholic that he never really did anything that wasn't film related. But she would come in and encourage him to just branch out a little. You know, read books that aren't just for research. Play tennis. Go skiing. Get a hobby, George. Damn, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like when you make work your whole life, like when your hobby is your job. We know this all too well, too. That can be very limiting in your sort of world experience. You think, well, I'm doing what I love for work. And then, but you don't get any variety. And suddenly your work is what you love. And then what you love just becomes work. And now where are you finding happiness? 
Yeah. And and she clearly is like, you are working yourself to death. And then when you try to relax, you're still reading books about filmmaking Uh or whatever. (laughs) And I need you to do something else. Like we we need you to get some fresh air. We need you to get out there in the world and like (laughs) see things and like enjoy yourself. Yeah, exactly. She also made him laugh. She helped him loosen up a little. Dale Pollock wrote, quote, he's more affectionate now than in the past. He'll even put his arm around her in public. What a concession oh from George. Goodness. He's like, this is my wife. <laughs> Look, I'm putting my arm around her. <laughs> That's how much I love you, honey. Somehow, somehow stomaching the PDA, <laughs> which I can't stand. I wonder if she's like, he's trembling like a leaf. (laughs) I feel his arm shaking. So in 1981, they finally adopted a baby, a girl named Amanda. And George hired Lawrence Kasdan to finish writing Return of the Jedi, Richard Maquan to direct, Howard Kazanjian to produce. And he's like, I'm just going to hang out with my family. Yeah. And Marsha told journalist Denise Worrell, quote, I make everyone leave at six o'clock so that when George comes home, it's just the two of us and Amanda. Nice. We actually have dinner at the table. I cook, I do dishes, and we give Amanda a bath together. George sometimes feeds her a bottle in the TV room. We just decided to try to keep our lives as normal as possible. We both have very traditional values. When you get a big jolt of money, it's very easy to be in awe of it and lose touch with reality. Sure. I don't want to raise children in a fantasy. But this is exactly the life that Marsha wants at this point. She wants her husband and kid home for dinner. She wants a normal after-dinner routine. She just wants a regular-ass domestic life. Yeah. You know what I'm getting is hints of uh, Susan and Robert Downey Jr., Mm, who set that rule early on when they were together. They had a two-week rule. Neither of us can be like away from home working on a movie for longer than two weeks at a time without seeing each other, physically being in each other's presence. Yeah. And eventually they moved that down to... We have to be in the same city at all times. Mm-hmm. Like, I won't work if you're not working in the same place. And they saw each other every day. And yeah. that, you know, that made their relationship, you know, it, it just brought a lot of importance, I think, to their home life yeah. and helped them realize what's important. Well, and it was them both being very intentionally like, we want to stay together yeah. and we know what this business does. Exactly. And so we're going to do everything we can to keep the business from breaking us up. Yep. But George was still empire building building an army worthy of mordor wait no wait that's minute, the wrong franchise minute. oh god we just got 1100 emails <laughs> marcia was still totally supportive of this even though kind of wasn't her dream to run a whole studio mm-hmm. but she oversaw management of the facility and she involved herself in the design of skywalker ranch since she had nothing else creative to do really mm-hmm. so at some point like so many ambitious people before him George started rationalizing to himself that it was all for Marsha. He said in 1981, quote, Marsha has sort of put her editorial career on hold and is now working as an interior designer. I don't really know if she'll go back to editing, and she's a good editor. Usually the offers are to go to New York or to Los Angeles, but that's no fun for us. It's like six months apart and coming home at weekends maybe, but once we got our facility up here... If a director wants her to edit, it'll be much easier to convince him to do it up here rather than wherever he lives. The whole reason for the ranch, actually, it's just a giant facility to allow my wife to cut film in Marin County. Ah, yes. (laughs) I conceived this entire project so my wife could cut film. To work from home. I know. I don't know. Also, like... That's a reach, bro. Well, also, 
you know, I want my wife to be at home and to be able to work. So I'm going to tell all these directors who are used to working in their own city, why don't you come out here and leave your family behind and work with me? <laughs> True. But John Baxter, the author of Mythmaker, The Life and Work of George Lucas, wrote that, quote, the joke was probably lost on Marsha, who stood by, befuddled by a man who was supposed to be retiring, was building a multi-million dollar mini studio at the expense of his personal life. Wild. Yeah. And it was somewhat at the expense of his actual dream, too, because, you know, he wanted a film school campus vibe. Loose, fun, comfortable, people collaborating, very easy and free. But when a corporation gets as big as Lucasfilm and it incorporates many, many other companies like LucasArts, Industrial Light and Magic, Sprocketworks, Skywalker Sound, the computer division, which included the graphics group, which would later become Pixar Studios... And so on and so on and so on. You know, it's a million mm -hmm. little things. And so you don't get to keep a casual vibe with a corporation of that size. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, producer Gary Kurtz said it best. Quote, the saddest thing about watching that process was the slow takeover by the bureaucracy. With that slowly came this thing about dress code, company policy, nobody talking to the press, and a firm of PR people. Damn. And it was quite frustrating, really. I decided I was more interested in working on interesting films than being tied to a machine like that. And I think that Marsha felt similarly. Sure. Like she's like, I'll edit a movie if it's like fucking Taxi Driver back in the day. Yeah. I don't want to do this. Yeah. In 1979, Lucasfilm had less than 50 employees. By 1982, there were over a thousand. Wow. So this is a, I mean, exponential growth in a very short period of time. Yeah. And apparently all his employees really loved him, too. At least at the time, in 1983, they were telling Dale Pollock, George is this great boss. He has high corporate ethics. He instills this family atmosphere. He makes everybody involved feel this real sense of pride in what they're making together and That's what cool. they're doing. And um, he's just really good at getting really good people, really talented people to work with him and yeah. stay, you know. So that's something to be said for George. Definitely. But, I mean, you know, if I can pull into Speculation Space Station. Yes, you can. <laughs> of course you can. Do proceed with docking. <laughs> I'm wondering if maybe he worked so hard to create a family atmosphere at work that he kind of forgot to make a family atmosphere at home with his family, <laughs> like uh, his yeah, actual family. Sure, sure. And I wonder that because at a party, screenwriter Richard Walter talked to Marsha and he recounted it this way, quote, what she told me underscored a sense I'd always had that intimacy was not a gigantic part of George's life. She just sort of blurted it out that it was extremely isolating. It was like Fortress Lucas. I'd heard this from people who worked with him at that time. They would say, I can't stand it. He's brilliant, but it's so cold. I feel like I'm suffocating. I've got to get out of here. And Marcia told me she just couldn't stand the darkness any longer. So you're telling me... <laughs> that uh, that George had his wife telling him, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to let go of all this desire, this passion, mm. this fear, you mm. know, because fear is going to lead to, you know, other things. Right. Um, uh, and, <laughs> and meanwhile, you've got like all the Lucasfilm money and power uh, beckoning to him saying, come join this side. George. It's sort of a darker side. 
Yeah. So he's almost got to make a choice here between like a lighter side <laughs> and a darker side. Wow, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, he should he should write a movie about it. <laughs> he should probably really <laughs> write a movie about it. He should put that. that into his work. <laughs> he should put some more something more personal into his work. <laughs> Well, uh, I think that we have got to go uh, explore the dark side real quick with <laughs> this commercial break, and we'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. 
Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, we're, we're all fine here. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Boring conversation anyway. <laughs> <laughs> someone just shot their Spotify. <laughs> yeah, Boring conversation just anyway. Blasted their comms. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So George here is getting more and more involved with the return of the Jedi shoot. Of course, he no, can't stay can't away. Stop. He's flying overseas to be on set, and he actually became an official second unit director. And uh, if you're unfamiliar, second unit directors usually come in and film the action sequences Mm -hmm. or pick up whatever uh, hasn't been filmed on on time or anything like that. But generally, it's the action stuff. And Marsha would be left alone in hotel rooms or mansions whenever she tagged along. Then he started prepping the Indiana Jones sequels, too. Back in California, Marsha was working on making Skywalker Ranch look good, Mm -hmm. all her awesome interior decorating skills. Yes, and it is a beautiful building. Editing out the excess, I imagine. (gasps) Hey! Uh, You don't need this column here. It's blocking my view and it's unnecessary. That's right. (laughs) Cut it out. Uh, There is no emotional resolution to this hallway, (laughs) so I think we should put a little table here or something. I need a little occasional table here with like a nice picture. (laughs) Right? Can we have, you know, you've got... All this wainscoting in the front room, Mm -hmm. maybe we could throw back to it later on in the house. Maybe. Might be nice to tie it together. I mean, if you foreshadow wainscoting in the front, you have to pay it (laughs) off at the end. Yes. Chekhov's (laughs) wainscoting. It's a rule. So while she's designing this, she remembered all the dark cubicles that she had to work in as an assistant editor and a film librarian. And she just wanted to make sure that everyone who worked for Lucasfilm had somewhere comfortable to work. Mm Mm-hmm. Their film library was particularly gorgeous, and it had this giant stained glass dome, which was commissioned by a local artist named Tom Rodriguez. And with George flying off to Sri Lanka to make Temple of Doom, Marsha was sad and lonely, but this handsome, young, talented stained glass artist was just hanging out and being cool. So maybe it's no wonder that Marsha fell for him and she and Tom started having an affair. So yeah, I mean, we know Marsha pretty good at this point. She's not the type to keep a secret for very long. Yeah. She doesn't sneak around. She's pretty open yeah. about She's what she tell thinks you. and feels. Yeah. So yeah, she did not keep this affair secret for very long. She told George, and he was absolutely pummeled by it. I yeah. mean, it really broke his heart. Yeah. And Marsha did try to save their marriage. You know, she told him, this is what I've been doing, and I'm sorry. Maybe we should go to marriage counseling. Well, George said, no, I ain't doing that. Then she's like, well, let's try a trial separation. And he also said no to that. And so she kind of chalked it up to the fact that he had really conservative family values. He had grown up from a conservative family values, very traditionalist. They were like, you're not supposed to get divorced. You're supposed to stick it out through thick and thin. You know, that's what marriage is. So he's saying, we'll just stay married and just put all this behind us and just yeah, forge ahead. I'll Let's just, just keep doing what we were you, doing. Yeah. Wow. Um, so she was trying different things to try. I mean, you know, I, I do. I, it sucks that she cheated on him. That's not cool. Yeah. But, you know, she had been telling him for several years now. Right. Listen, this is not I'm not happy. Yeah. Um. And so when she was trying to come up with solutions and he just kept turning her down. 
Some sources say that this was only because George was worried about the Return of the Jedi coming out. So he was like, let's, you know, let's save the news about our divorce until after the movies Mm. hit the box office. We don't want to hurt the returns. Then (sighs) we'll tell everybody. But Michael Kaminsky felt like George's solution was to ask Marsha to edit Return of the Jedi. It was like a project they could work on together like old times. They could collaborate and get creative together and maybe that would kind of bring them back to when they were young and in love, Uh maybe, he thought. I don't know. And she did. She did say yes to that. And she edited Return of the Jedi, especially Yoda and Darth Vader's death scenes, um, as well as space battles, you know, with equal aplomb. She's still a a great editor. Spoiler alert. uh, Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader and Yoda both die. Oh, yeah. Sorry. sorry. (laughs) Yeah, George was like, I gave her particularly the quote unquote dying and crying scene because I, I feel like he's like these make no sense to me why is everyone so sad <laughs> emotions and she's like um, well uh, they kind of know each other and love it anyway let me do this yeah. <laughs> I'll do this part but of course this wasn't going to bring them together no. like we remember back in their early days it, working together was part of the problem like that's one of the things that made their relationship hard in the beginning I feel like it was like five years before she had been like if we work on another movie together yeah, it's the end of our marriage exactly. you know I mean work had only ever torn them apart in part one we shared a quote from George back in the 60s when they first got together that making films was his whole life and he was glad it was Marsha's whole life too but it wasn't Marsha's whole life anymore she had other goals we've talked about she wanted a family she wanted to settle down and enjoy those rewards Like we said, cash that check. Let me enjoy that check now. Um, But George simply could not stop, even though it seemed like he kind of wanted to. In an interview in 1983, he said, quote, I'm not having much fun. It's all work. And it's very anxiety ridden, very hard, very frustrating and relentless. It's disrupted my family life. I have a wife and a two year old daughter, and they are the most important things in my life. My family is it for me. Amanda is two years old now, and she's magic. She's this little girl, and she ain't going to wait for me. She's going. She's growing. The last thing in the world I want is to turn around and have her be 18 and say, Hi, Dad. Where have you been all my life? But he couldn't suit his actions to words, you know, which must have been so frustrating. There's nothing worse than hearing someone go over and over again, you're the most important thing in my life, but I'm just not going to prioritize your feelings or your needs. (laughs) What are you supposed to feel about that? It's also very frustrating to be that person, I imagine, in some ways, too, because, again, just on my like mini scale uh, comparison, you do have moments where you're like, I am changing my priorities now. And yeah. it's a swamp. You cannot, it's quicksand. You can't just like, mm-hmm. you can't swim out of it. Oh, yeah. It's very hard to escape that pull mm-hmm. um, and just shift to a different lifestyle. So it's that must have been frustrating for everyone. Definitely. And yeah. I, like you said, I totally feel George yeah. very hard because yeah. we work very hard. Yeah. We have several things going on at all times. It feels like we're constantly busy and working. Right. And there's people in my life that I never see yeah. that I'm like, I want you to know that you matter to me. Right. And I can't show it the way I'd like because I feel so bogged down. Oh, God. The number of times that I've said... I'm really busy this month, but next month I'm going to have so much more time. Yeah, that's and I and I'm like, I know I've said that before Mm -hmm. and I know that at some point it will be true, Mm -hmm. but it's very hard to make true. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I never know in the back of my mind, this is bullshit. I'm not going to have more time next month. I, every single time I say it, I earnestly believe I'm going to get to see my friends again. Yeah, but no. <laughs> but then there's a pandemic and, you know, <laughs> then you get a new job. It's just, it's always something. Yeah, basically. Then they want a third Star Wars movie. Like, All right. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll make it, I uh-huh. guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, George told Marsha everything would be different as soon as Jedi was over. Kind of like you're saying. Yeah. He really thought as soon as this thing, as soon as this thing, and then the next thing is very similar. Right. And he said, yeah, as soon as Jedi's over, everything's going to be great. Kaminsky writes that he swore, quote, that he would settle down and give her and Amanda the attention they deserved. In between flights to the Indiana Jones set across the world, that is. Oh, man. It was the same old story. I know George wanted me to stay, but it was just too little, too late, Marcia says. So, finally, in June of 1983, while holding hands, they appeared together in front of their staff and told everyone they were divorcing. Oh, man. And apparently this made Steven Spielberg lose faith in marriage for a very long time. No shit. Yeah, he said, like, they were, that that was the, rela- like, the relationship to me, wow. which I could totally see on the outside. Oh, You've got yeah. these two really great people who have been together for a number of years. They're building this incredible thing together. They're yeah. both 50-50 partners and everything. And, you know, it looks like, oh, that's exactly, especially if you're also a filmmaker. Right. How perfect. Like, his wife's also a filmmaker. She gets it. They're totally on the same page. And then you find out, no, they're not on the same page. Oh, man. And I Maybe I can't have that, and maybe it's not maybe real. Maybe no, love isn't <laughs> maybe real. Maybe love is not real. Like Steven uh, Spielberg damn. was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I got to make a movie about an alien well, real quick. What really breaks my heart is that all, a lot of this seems to have come out of Temple of Doom. Oh, my God. Which is just not worth it. Like, it wasn't, <laughs> that movie was not worth destroying a marriage over. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love Indiana Jones, but Temple of Doom's a damn mess. Maybe that's, oh, uh, foreshadowing certainly an episode we'll do in the future. Maybe what you're saying is why Steven Spielberg was like, I better just marry this actress real quick and oh, snatched up Kate Capshaw and was like, you and me, let's get married now. Who knows how long it'll last? Right. Love is love is a lie. <laughs> love is transient. <laughs> we'll find out when we do the Steven Spielberg, Kate Capshaw episode yeah. someday in the future, which I'm sure we'll have lots of screaming. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like Temple of Doom that much, y'all. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of Gen Xers will be mad at me because it's their favorite. But I know our friend Rob loves it. Rob loves it. Mm-hmm. And we love Rob. Oh, yeah. But it's all... I, I mean, okay, so I'll just piss off everybody. Raiders isn't my favorite either. It's all about Last Crusade for me, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Uh, Raiders is excellent. Yeah. But The Last Crusade is phenomenal. I'm going to get too into Indiana Jones here, but damn it, that movie is... Fucking, it's perfect. I it's love flawless. Last Crusade. That it's definitely so has the fun. most nostalgia. I'm sure it's the one I watched the most, yeah. you know, when it, when I was younger or something. But I definitely watch it like, oh, I'm a kid so again. Good. I suddenly remembered my Charlemagne. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Marcia and George divorced. They split custody of their daughter, Amanda. And their divorce settlement left Marcia with an enormous sum, as much as $50 million dollars. Which in the mid '80s, fifty million dollars today is worth. Checking here, a hundred and forty million dollars. Whoa! Which I mean, like to me, there's no difference between fifty million and hundred and forty million. <laughs> you know? you like, still yeah, buy everything you could just, ever want and not even notice. Yeah, that's just infinite money. It's so true. <laughs> um, all of our 
all of our listeners with $150 million are out there going, it's not that much. Like, it's really not that much. The thing is, is that everything you buy has additional costs. Look, like the yacht, you would not believe the docking fees. And I'm like, you know, uh, try me. Try me. <laughs> Send me some and I'll let you know how, how, how it is. How hard it is. <laughs> Give me a chance with your millions. So Marsha ended up buying a house in the suburbs of San Francisco with Tom Rodriguez. Yeah. And the two of them ended up getting married and they had a daughter together in 1985 named Amy. Marsha finally had the financial security and the cozy domestic life that she had been wanting for so long. But George was depressed and he was feeling really bitter about all this. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of not really a surprise because he had been cheated on and left for a younger man. And then he lost about half of his fortune. This actually put Lucasfilm in a precarious financial position throughout the whole rest of the 80s. Kaminsky writes that there's a circular irony to their divorce, saying, quote, George emotionally neglected Marcia for years in the hopes of securing his private empire. Yet in the end, this pushed her away completely. And when she left, she took away the private empire that had instigated the process in the first place. His greed cost him his wife and his empire. It is my opinion, writes Kaminsky, that Lucas chose to shape Anakin Skywalker's arc in the prequels in a similar manner because of his own reflections on his own self-created loss. Damn. Wow. Which I have to say, we just recently watched the prequels not yes. that long ago, and yeah. they're not good. They're, I'm um, sorry. Sorry. They're just not. Good. They're just not. They're I'm not so good glad that people love them, and maybe yes. if I'd seen them when I was six, mm-hmm. I would have a fonder memory of them. There's a good. There's good movies in there. Yeah. There's elements of great movies. Maybe I almost think that like if an editor had come in <laughs> who had like who really strongly wanted more of an emotional mm-hmm. resonance throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was like these characters aren't acting believably. Right. And this relationship is unbelievably toxic. And there's no reason that this woman should be interested in this man at all. None. And I do not believe their romance. Anyway, you were going to say, <laughs> <laughs> you go yes. on. Yes. <laughs> um, it, it does like, just having that in mind uh-huh. makes me watch them kind of in my head a little bit yeah. differently because yeah. I sort of agree with Kaminsky. It, it makes the story better, honestly, to know if if George is putting his own life into it. There is a lot more emotion to it. Yeah. Because what you have is Anakin going, I can have no love. I cannot be in love if I want to do this yeah. Jedi thing. That's well, basically what George was doing was was denying himself love and an emotional connection so that he could instead make movies and believing he could have both. I right. think that's that's, that's the parallel, that's the too, parallel is because too, Anakin yeah. thought I can have both. And everyone was telling him you can't, you can't. You've, you can be a Jedi or you can go marry this lady, but you should be a Jedi because you're the chosen one. Mm-hmm. And that's probably how George felt, yeah. you know, to some degree. He's like, I've got everyone is obsessed with this thing I created. I, I it is my responsibility. Mm-hmm. They're calling me the chosen one. Right. You know, but. It'd be nice if I could if I could have this romance too. Yeah. But oh, but oh, she oh, she ticks me off telling me you know how to live. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. so it's all in there. I hate it really sand. is. <laughs> George, George Lucas <laughs> notoriously hated sand all these years. <laughs> so he kept putting everything on a desert planet. <laughs> and yeah, like it's not like Marcia did not deserve the money that she got from this divorce right. settlement by the right. way like people were like talking like she's some gold digger or something at the time but no she was a full business partner in Lucasfilm and she was part of the reason that he was ever successful in the first place right so Lucasfilm president Bob Gerber pointed it out at the time in the 80s 
quote, People sometimes forget that Marsha Lucas owns half of this company and is a very important part of it. So, you know, she got what she was supposed to get yeah, from absolutely. their partnership. Absolutely. And if she had gotten less, it honestly would have been a robbery of her. But even so, like George got a little vindictive over this amount of money that she had gotten. Maybe even he kind of forgot that she was such so valuable to yeah. his success. Well, and he's feeling personally injured, personally too, injured. Right? Exactly. And, you know, you lash out, you say dumb shit and stuff. So at this point, he kind of told all his friends, who, of course, were all Marsha's friends, too, that he's like, I'm not comfortable being around Marsha. If you could just like not invite her to stuff, that would be really helpful for Damn. me. And guess who, you know, they choose. Obviously, they're going to choose George Lucas. Right. Uh, he's the one still in the industry. She's out in San Francisco having a baby. Nobody cares, right. you know. So a lot of her social circle evaporated. And Marsha said, quote, that really hurt. It's not enough that I'm erased from his life. He wants to blackball me, too, with people who were my friends. It's like I never existed. That's tough. And even though they split custody of Amanda, Amanda did spend all her time with George and very mm. little with Marcia. And I couldn't find a lot of explanation for why that might be. Yeah. Maybe it's just because she had her daughter with Tom or something, but that feels very cold of Marcia. Yeah. It doesn't line up for her character to me that she'd mm. be like, all I wanted was a baby. I had one for two years with George and now I don't care about her. Like, that's very weird right. to me. So there's something really private happened with that. But I'm sure it was incredibly painful for her to be separated from two people who she really did love. I don't think the love is completely gone. You know, she's just like, we can't be married. You know, we're not a good married couple. Right. Yeah. But it seems like he kind of iced her out after that. Yeah. Even more oh, than he had man. when they were married. Now, George Lucas, of course, went on to do other things. He worked on all the Indiana Jones movies. Jim Henson's Labyrinth, Don Bluth's The Land Before Time, Ron Howard's Willow, his biggest flop ever, Howard the Duck. Mm -hmm. And, of course, both of the Ewoks movies mm -hmm. that we all know have maybe heard of. <laughs> Which I have to say, I just want to say as a creative person, yeah. you can totally see how George is like, how can I not do this? Oh, yeah. Like you're getting scripts Absolutely. and ideas from Jim Henson for fucking Labyrinth. Yes. And for Willow and all these cool movies Amazing that like movies. I love now. Yeah. It must have been really, really hard for him to go, well, actually, I'm supposed to be taking a step back and hanging out no. at home. Like, he, you know, if you're that if you're that type of person, that seems like an, it's just too good. Oh you have God. to do at least this project, you know, and then you get another good one. And you're like, oh, maybe after this one. Like, I could I totally feel that it would be very hard to say no to it these would, movies. It would get rocky for us before I figured it out and really put a stop to it. Yeah. You know, like. If Steven Spielberg called me oh and was God. like, I want you to produce this movie for me, mm -hmm. and you were like, please don't, I need you to stay home, I would say, I I need you to let me do this, mm -hmm. and that'll be it. Yeah. And you'd be like, all right, I'll let you do this. And then another one would happen, you'd be like, the last time, you know, mm -hmm. I told you I didn't want you to do this. I'd say, one more, one more, one more, one more. And it would take you telling me, yeah. <laughs> if you don't stop working for Steven Spielberg, I'm leaving you. <laughs> For me to go, oh, my God, I'm getting Steven Spielberg is sucking up all of my time. I got to step away. I'm sorry. I, I, I cannot do Munich 2 for you, Steven Spielberg. I know you really have been wanting a sequel. So, yeah, Lucas is doing all this stuff. He founded THX Limited in 1983. He sold Graphics Group to Steve Jobs in 1986. And then he even dated pop star Linda Ronstadt for a while. Yeah. Not bad. People Magazine ran an article about this in March of 1984. 
They said, quote, Ronstadt's latest crush, George Lucas, is just her type. Bright, creative, curious, interesting, and by all accounts, one of the nicest guys on two legs. He has just as many reasons to fall for her, and they each have one more. They are both private hermits from hype. Hermits from hype. <laughs> the George Lucas story. Hi, we're hermits from hype, and we're from Athens. <laughs> This is from our new album, Ronstadt's Latest Crush. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a good album. Yeah, I, I would listen to <laughs> I that. I would listen to Hermits for Might more. <laughs> but it sounds like this whole thing was probably a pretty short-lived little fling. It also quotes one of her friends as saying, quote, George is so lucky to be with her. <laughs> it's the 80s. It's well, one of the Ronstadt's right. friends. She's got to be a valley girl, Absolutely. right? George is so lucky to be with her, he will have more fun than he's ever had in his life. And then she will break his heart into a thousand pieces and go on to someone else. Ooh. Another friend of hers saying, quote, Linda's already getting restless. She does have a roving eye. Ooh, oh, Linda. Uh, we might need to do an episode about whatever Linda Ronstadt was getting up to, right? We definitely do. She dated like everyone. She dated oh, Bill Murray. No. She dated Jim Carrey. What? I mean, she, she never dated, dated me. The, I know, right? Linda. You never called Hello? Eli. I didn't even get a call. <laughs> I was two you were years not old born. at the time. In, in March 1984, you were not born. No, in born. March I was not. <laughs> you were. I was born. Yeah. I was 16 days old when this, this uh, <laughs> article came out. So, uh, well, all right. Let's go check on Linda Ronstadt and take yeah. another quick commercial break. And okay. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. 
In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As you can see, my young listeners, the marriage has failed. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational podcast. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Look, it's for the nerds. No, no, I mean, I'm one of them. (laughs) I'm sitting here delighted (laughs) by our fully armed and operational podcast. Yeah, you thought it was only half built, but it's done. It's actually done. Ready. That's such a great moment. Mm -hmm. You know, Jedi's not my favorite, but that's a... That's a cool moment. That is a cool moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many in those movies. Oh, yeah. Like, and I love Return of the Jedi. Speaking of what you watched <laughs> as a kid or whatever. Like, I know it's goofy, or but it was definitely the one I watched the most as a kid because yeah. I loved the Ewoks. Yeah. But, you know, loved that nice catharsis of that, them winning and defeating sure, everything. Sure. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. They win. Spoiler alert. Star Wars has a happy ending. Guess what? Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, people would always be like, Empire's the best, Empire's... And I was like, no, it's so dark. (laughs) (laughs) But now I get it. I get it. But anyway, I love Return of the Jedi. So Marsha spent 10 years married to Tom, who was a very successful artist who sold paintings in galleries all over the world, but also loved wine and softball. He's like a just a fun guy, Mm -hmm. uh, totally tons of hobbies, very different from George in a lot of ways. But they also eventually divorced in 1993. A profile of Tom on avalleylife.com quotes him as saying, quote, It had been a wild and exciting time. We had many friends in the movie business, including Robin Williams and Harrison Ford. And the partying had become quite excessive. <laughs> so, you know, not all of Marsha's Hollywood friends left her out in the cold. Thank right. you, Harrison Ford. Right. I'm very glad to hear that because at yeah. first I was like, it would really suck. If all these people were like, yeah, we really like you, Marsha, but we're just not going to hang out ever uh-huh. because George wouldn't like it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That feels a bit uh, lame. Yeah. 
And I also love the idea that she spent 10 years kind of still partying oh, <laughs> and yeah. hanging out and enjoying herself. Well, Marsha was the party. I remember she used oh, to go yeah. hang out with Martin Scorsese in his wild days. Hanging out in New York. Right. So George, as a single father, adopted two more kids, his daughter Katie in 1988 and his son Jet in 1993. And fun fact, Marsha and George's daughter Amanda became a mixed martial arts fighter. That's right. Which is cool. Yeah. And all three of his kids appeared in the prequels. And George also did, which I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He apparently has an appearance in the prequels no as well. Which I was like, I guess I need to go back and look because I don't remember seeing Oh, him. yeah. Because he is, um, he's... Uh, Padme's double, right? Like you can't tell the difference between oh, him right. and Natalie Portman. So he plays her double, the, that girl, that nurse in the movie that's that right. like walks behind her all the time. That's right. That's you right. just can't tell. He has a nice lipstick uh-huh. on the lower lip. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Man, that was amazing. He disappeared into that role. <laughs> and yeah, it seems like after Linda Ronstadt in 1984, which was very shortly after his divorce, it seems like he didn't really have another romantic connection until 2006. Oh, wow. When he met executive Melody Hobson at a business conference. And this is another total boss, super strong, take no shit kind of lady. Mm-hmm. So I sort I like George's taste in women even though he can't <laughs> he can't seem to uh, give him his heart yeah. the way that they might want. He's he likes a strong lady. Um, At the time when they met, she was head of an investment brokerage and she was the chair of DreamWorks Animation. But today, she is the first black woman to chair an S&P 500 company because she was named the chair of Starbucks. Nice. Maybe you've heard of it. All right. And she's number 94 on Forbes' list of the world's 100 most powerful women. Wow. So he found himself a total Palpatine. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad, George. Good for you. Right. It's going to say, it's like, oh, great. Two evil empires merging. Uh-oh. <laughs> now there's a Starbucks on Skywalker Ranch. Um, they dated for seven years before he proposed. Okay. And in 2013, they announced their engagement in February, got married in June, and welcomed their first child via gestational carrier in August. I mean, Jeez. that is a busy year. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a whole lot of shit to happen in one year. For real. Um, but we have two, like, powerhouse, like, get it done type of folks. So yeah. maybe they were like, all right, well, we waited, beat around the bush long enough. We've dated. Now it's time to really get to it. We're married. We're having a kid. We're settling down. Yeah, boom, boom, right, boom. One right. after the other. Now, Marsha doesn't have another film credit under her belt. Now, Marsha doesn't have another film credit under her belt after the 80s, except for an executive producer credit on a 1996 movie called No Easy Way and a producing credit in 1998 on a short film called A Good Son. People didn't hear from Marsha for years until she opened up to author Peter Biskind in 1997 for his book, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. She told him, quote, I felt that we had paid our dues, fought our battles, worked eight days a week, 25 hours a day. I wanted to stop and smell the flowers. I wanted joy in my life. And George just didn't. He was very emotionally blocked, incapable of sharing feelings. He wanted to stay on that workaholic track, the empire builder, the dynamo. And I couldn't see myself living that way for the rest of my life. I was the more emotional person who came from the heart, and George was the more intellectual and visual, and I thought that provided a nice balance. But George would never acknowledge that to me. I think he resented my criticisms, felt that all I ever did was put him down, and he never felt that I had any talent. He never felt that I was very smart, and he never gave me very much credit. When we were finishing Jedi, George told me he thought I was a pretty good editor. 
In the 16 years of our being together, I think that was the only time he complimented me. Damn. George, come on. You gotta, you gotta compliment, not, not just your spouse, mm-hmm. but the people you work with, yeah. the people working for you, and the people who are good at their jobs. Seriously. You know? <laughs> I mean, a lot of times it's not even about money or whatever. It's right. really just like, do you see me? Exactly. Do you see me busting my ass and giving you the best that I have? Right. No? Okay. Well, right. then I'm going to fuck off. Yeah. Um, decades after their divorce, George was asked about his split with Marsha in a 60 Minutes interview, and he told them he hadn't seen it coming at all. Oh. And they, so they're like, oh, so you're, you were happy, everything's fine, and then suddenly there's this other man? And he said, quote, 10 years younger than me, it was one of those classic divorce situations. Um. Okay, now, I mean, you know, maybe he just didn't feel like getting into all that with 60 Minutes. Sure. I mean, that's sure. fair. Yeah. But- Taken on its face, it kind of looks like he conveniently forgot about all the times that she came to him and said, George, this is what I need from you in order for us to stay together. Yeah. And him being like, yep, heard, heard, no problem, and then didn't do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, I don't know, seems sort of the most tragic thing to me about that is that they do both seem to have let bitterness win yeah. in the intervening years. Because mm. like when they went to their staff holding hands to like announce their divorce, that, that seems to me that they were trying to still have some kind of relationship. Right. Like they were like, we know we still care about each other. We're still friends. You know, there's still a really good relationship here that just can't be married. We just yeah. know that about us now. Yeah. But now, you know, you've got Marsha. I mean, maybe she's speaking the truth when she says that George never complimented her, ever told her what a good editor she was right. or whatever. Although we have read you some quotes from interviews that he gave where he did compliment her and say she was a good editor. Right. Now, it's different to hear, you know, it's not the same. If you were going out being like, Diana's amazing, I love her, and I yeah. I didn't hear it yeah. ever at home, then right. it wouldn't really matter that you were out telling other people. That's why I never do that. I know. Yeah, it's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I'm going to be sure to, I do, do not compliment Diana in public because she doesn't hear it, it's worthless. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I usually try to put you down a little bit when you're not around. Oh that way, people are more impressed when they meet you. Oh, wow. Thank you, babe. That's so nice of you to really, really uh, help me out in that way. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome, actually. I like, I like that you manage people's expectations for yeah, me. Yeah. Don't do what I do. Don't do the same because that'd, that'd be copying. Right. I know. You just want to hear nothing but praise at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. <laughs> Could we have one now, actually, be just on, on Oh, um, on mic? yeah. Eli is really, really good at totally misreading the things that I say. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. That felt really good. That was perfect. He's amazing at it. That's, that's a really nice compliment. Thank You're you. Welcome. I don't think I quite get it, but anyway. Anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. It's just, you know, we've heard him compliment her out in the wild. But right. Maybe she's right in saying he never said anything directly to her. That would have meant a lot, maybe. Totally possible. Or Maybe she, again, is kind of just letting all the bad times overshadow all the good stuff. And that can be such an easy thing to happen in a breakup or a divorce of any kind. Right. I mean, especially if you have decades of time go by where you're like, man, I sure did uh, win an Oscar for that movie and people keep not talking about me (laughs) and my contribution to it. Hello. Like that could really add a lot too. Um, And George, of course knew that his emotional detachment and workaholism was causing a lot of trouble for them. I mean, again, we shared some quotes from the time where he's like, I'm not having fun. Marsha's not having fun. Nobody's happy. Mm -hmm. My daughter's going to grow up without me. But, you know, he doesn't want to own up to that. He doesn't want to kind of take 
responsibility for his part in the right. breakup. He's like, she cheated. That was it. It was over after that. It, there was nothing happened before that, you know. And after selling Lucasfilm to Disney, he did go into semi-retirement. Mm-hmm. But he still is a story consultant on like all the new Star Wars projects. They still involve him a lot and and talk to him about like the world of the jet, you know, what how the Jedi powers work and whatever yeah. else. Yeah. So like literally decades after he first said, I'm retiring, he still cannot take his hands fully off the wheel. Right. You know? And again, he had health problems from that. Yeah. Right. And even that was not enough of a wake up call. He lost yeah. his wife. That's not enough of a wake up call. Like it's just the work was too much. Yeah. He's full He's married Darth Vader. to his job. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And Marsha's had a little chip on her shoulder about his biggest project too. Um, probably because, like we said, she never really got the credit she deserved for editing Star Wars. Right. In J.W. Rinsler's book, Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life, Marcia said that when she saw The Phantom Menace, she, quote, cried because I didn't think it was very good. <laughs> she... Girl, me too, you know? <laughs> Same. I will say, I'll tell you what, to this day, the last... 20 minutes of that movie are very exciting. Yeah. And I well, like and I love Ewan McGregor. Ewan's that was the main charming. thing for me. I was like, Ewan's in it? He's I love great. him. Liam Neeson is nice and stoic. He's mm-hmm. doing a good job. I mean, again, there's elements of a good movie in oh, there. Yeah. It just did not come together to be a good right, movie. Right, right, right. Marsha particularly hated the age gap between Anakin and Padme. True. Same. Very <laughs> uncomfortable. Weird. But... And here's where Marsha and I are going to get into it a little bit. (laughs) She really hated the new trilogy even more. She said, quote, I like Kathleen Kennedy. I always liked her. She was full of beans. She was really smart and really bright, really wonderful woman. Now she's running Lucasfilm and making movies. And it seems to me that Kathy and J.J. Abrams don't have a clue about Star Wars. They don't get it. She was furious when they killed off Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. Spoiler alert. I know. And she hated that there was no explanation for Rey's powers, which is kind of a non-spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> she said, quote, I thought, you don't get the Jedi story. You don't get the magic of Star Wars. It sucks. The storylines are terrible. You can quote me. J.J. Abrams, Kathy Kennedy, talk to me. Oh. <laughs> I love her passion. Oh, yeah. And I can I can, I can, can get behind her feeling that they don't understand her Star Wars, right? Because mm-hmm. that's definitely something in the new trilogy. These are This is new hands, new minds, mm-hmm. a whole new people taking what Star Wars was to them. Yeah. And telling stories from it. And that can definitely be very disconnected. And I know a lot of people who are mad at the new trilogy for exactly those reasons, uh, that it wasn't Star Wars to them. Um, But I really love both the first two movies of the new trilogy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a shame they never made a third one. Uh, (laughs) But uh, but that's just how it how it goes sometimes. Never finished that third (laughs) one. They just never. They wanted to. Mm hmm. 
Um, but it never happened. Yeah. I mean, we both liked The Last Jedi. I know that's controversial. It is. We're going to lose all of our listeners. I know. That, we're whatever. Gonna, oh, no. We just got another 1100 email. Beautiful emails. story about failure and uh, and second chances and like not worship, you know, not getting sucked into hero worship and mm-hmm. how that can backfire on you. You've got to kind of forge your own way and you don't have to be destined from a line of royals in order to be a hero yourself. And there's just so yeah. much good stuff in it. Yes. Uh, it's not flawless. And it's not about, I mean, it's finally opening up the universe a little bit, you know, and right. made it so narrow to be like this one family line is right. the only people in the universe that matter. I mean, you know. So I liked that about The yeah. Last Jedi, but um, we won't get into it with yeah, you. You think, have your own opinion hey, about Star Wars. Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to try and convince anyone who didn't like it that they should. No. I'll defend my position, but I think yeah. it's ridiculous. It is flat out the worst thing in the world if you decide that it is your job to change someone's mind about something. Now, it's not to say that you can't say like, well, let me give you another perspective and maybe you'll appreciate it from that angle. But to tell someone you're wrong for feeling how you did about something uh, is wrong. That's the that's the only wrong thing you can do. I mean, particularly about a piece of art. Yeah. I mean, art is subjective. It's right. the number one rule about it right. is that you're you don't get to choose how someone reacts to exactly. your art. And you shouldn't. It's pointless, as you say, yeah. to be like, you why don't you convince me to dislike the right? last Jedi? <laughs> you me? can't do it. I liked it. So sorry you can't do it. Yeah. Why would I spend my time trying to convince you to like it when you didn't? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just it did different things for us and that's what art does and great. You yeah. know what? It's a wonderful world. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's a weird, wonderful world. We all enjoy it differently. It's called opinion. <laughs> it's called subjective nature of art. True. And the and that's how it goes. So sorry, Marsha. But you're Sorry, wrong. Marcia. And let you're me tell you why you're wrong. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. But yeah, I mean, that's basically it's so funny that she kind of like disappeared from film history for so long. And everyone's right. like, no one heard from her until 1997. She finally said something about the Phantom <laughs> Menace. And then like years later, it's like she decided to come out again just to shit again all over <laughs> Star Wars. And I'm like, I don't know if that's Marsha's choice or is that's the only time anyone reaches out to her as right. a new Star Wars. They're like, so what do you think? Um, but it's kind of funny that she's never come out to be like, and also Tom and I were very happy together. <laughs> like, I don't know, or something, like <laughs> just anything. But whatever. So yeah, that that's kind of the story of George Lucas and, and his editor wife, Marsha. Yeah, um, yeah. Fascinating and so just unknown. I mean, again, I, I had knew no, I, literally I nothing know. about this. And it's very interesting, too, that you can win an Oscar and still be completely unknown. Oh, like, yeah, it seems like, it. and I know that's obvious, but like, it just seems like one of those things that as an actor or as an editor or whatever that you're like, great. Yeah. Here I am at the top of the world. And for Marsha, she was like, cool, I got my statue and now I'm done. Yeah. Like, that's all I wanted. Yeah. I don't need to keep working and prove that I should have this. Yeah. I earned it and now I'm done. So yeah, I mean, but I was so I was so fascinated to learn this about Marsha that she was like this secret weapon right. for George Lucas. Yeah. And and like really, I mean, changed the trajectory of his career. If they had not got together, we'd have different film history, it feels yeah. like. Yeah. Because if she hadn't been there to get him to make American graffiti, he may never have gotten to make Star Wars. Absolutely. And we would not have Star Wars or we'd have a different type of sci-fi, you know, amazing 
the thing that we all love, but it wouldn't be Star Wars. Yeah, Yeah. if we're lucky. Because he also, you know, George Lucas is a little bit James Cameron vibes where he's like, I have to, I want to make technologically something that doesn't exist. Exactly. The the technology doesn't exist to make the thing that I want. I have to make the tech first. Yep. And that's why it's so many companies because he had to like patent all these things. Yeah. So, like, imagine that. We wouldn't have industrial light and magic. Forget it. Who do every movie, you know? Like, it's just very crazy to think about if Marsha had gone to the Sandler Film Library to work with her ex, her her first boyfriend or whatever. Right. How differently everything might be. And if Max and Carlotta had not been invited Uh, to Mexico, then we might not even have a George Lucas. Would Marsha have even (laughs) been born? Keep, uh, I mean, yeah, I, we do get into butterfly affecting a little bit on this show a lot, but I think that's so interesting to say, you know, we're looking at these just two people mm-hmm. just falling for each other and what that the ripples that that can have through history. Right. Um, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the notion of Marsha as this secret weapon for Star Wars, too. You might say that she just looked like George Lucas's wife, you know, mm-hmm. but she was actually a fully armed and operational <laughs> battle station you weren't expecting, and boom, now you get Star Wars. Boom. I do wish, you touched on this before, but I do wish they'd expand and go tell other stories in this entire galaxy they've got, right. and we just keep looking at people related to the same main characters from the first movie, and I'm like, give me, you've got a galaxy, show me, I'll, I'll say, don't steal my idea, I'm putting it here on the record so everybody knows if I ever get a Star Wars movie copyright this right now if I ever get a Star Wars movie it's gonna be about a Jedi detective like Jedi's were out there Mm -hmm. keeping the peace right hell yeah so at some point certainly one of them had to solve a mystery yeah and how fucking cool would it be to watch a Jedi Solve a mystery. You can make it kind of like noir vibe. Mm, That'd be be awesome, right? I would do a comedy series about all the servers that work at Canteen, at the most Eisley Canteen or something. And all the crazy customers they get. (laughs) And like (laughs) people coming in, shooting the place up. And they're like, well, it's a Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the guy who plays the flute. What's his name? In the band, he's somebody will like, tell us. Like that guy, what's yeah. his life like when he go? What's his? He plays the flute for like eighteen hours a day <laughs> on Tatooine. <laughs> is his wife at home? Like, like hey, all you ever do is play your music. <laughs> I want a kid. You're such a workaholic. <laughs> if only George felt that way. I know, you know, right, George? If he had just felt like, you know, I got the whole world in my hands, but I just want to hang out at home with my wife, maybe it'd be different. But I will a say- A lot of things would be different. It's difficult for me to say, mm-hmm. I wish George Lucas had no. given up on Star Wars and fixed his family life, because selfishly, I do not want that to have happened. Again, with all the, sh- the fucking movies that he worked on that yeah. I love. Yeah. I'm just like- I almost want to be like, Marsha, give him a break. (laughs) I mean, it's David Bowie with puppets. Like, Why are you yelling at this man? (laughs) You expect him to say no to David Bowie with puppets? Freaking David freaking Bowie! I don't know. So I, I feel you because I'm like, on one hand, as a person and feeling very strongly about these two people right. who are just normal people who want to be in love and have a good relationship. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, George, get out of work. But as a person who really watched, you know, really loved and enjoyed those movies. Yeah. I can't be sad that yeah. that he didn't. I don't know. It's that's a tough yeah. one. Like I mean, you said. I, I, I half want to make this joke about like, George, your responsibilities lie with me, not with your wife. 
but there's a question there, right? Like, do you if you're if you're contributing something to the world, uh, mm-hmm. and you have it to contribute, I think a lot of people get stuck in that question of like, what's the moral right thing to do here? Is it my responsibility to give my gifts to the world? Maybe take it away from something as uh, you know nonsensical and ethereal as as film and art, but like I'm. Maybe I'm curing cancer, oh, yeah. but I have to work so long that my wife wants to leave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I, and I, but I really think I can do it. Do I stop doing that for my family mm-hmm. or do I have a responsibility in a larger sense to give up my own happiness to try and help, you know, millions and millions of people? I don't know. That's, that's again, that, that's obviously very George right. Lucas wasn't curing cancer and that's I'm sure uh, something... Marcia was like it ain't cancer George <laughs> well, I was just gonna say that's, that is something that we say very often on set when things get stressful we're not curing cancer here everybody yeah. you know and yeah. you, kind of, you kind of take a step back mm-hmm. but just sort of that like George Lucas has contributed a lot to people's happiness yeah. and a, a lot of people who have very difficult lives have been able to escape into Star Wars and I, I'm sure that it has saved lives yeah you know, in its own way. So you, you it's could tough. say that somebody was constantly telling him, "You could bring balance to the force. <laughs> it's more important than your personal feelings, George." Oh, yeah. Leave that woman behind. You're the chosen one. You have to cut off your connections in order to succeed. The Jedi were dicks, by the way. Um, <laughs> just throw that out there. This whole like you have to give up everything you care about. Uh, you know, again. Uh, Oh, I'm gonna get into it. One of the things I do like about the seek about the prequels that I wish they focused on a little more is that Anakin did bring balance to the Force mm-hmm. because the Jedi were out of control. Right, they ran the government. They had too much power. They had way too much power, and I I wish the movie had zeroed in a little more on that fact because and I I hoped it did when we rewatched it, and I just wasn't getting enough sense of that. It mm-hmm. really felt like they were objectively the good guys and right about everything and the Sith were evil and wrong about everything and that was it but I'm like if I was remaking those movies I would definitely lean a little harder on there's the unbalance right now is that Jedi are out of control Mm -hmm. they're insane they are so pompous and arrogant and they think they're right about everything and they're wrong yeah they're straight up being told they're wrong and they're like but we can't be wrong we're Uh Jedi's like they're literally choking on their own hubris all I needed was a all I needed was a moment for Yoda to realize that you know in the third one to be like wow we were we really screwed up here screwed up here we did really I guess he would say screwed the pooch we did you know was really Ball, ball we dropped on <laughs> balancing the force. Wow, Yoda. Not only did you not bring balance to the force, now you're screwing pooches. Wow. Oh, I, whoa, really whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> That's uh, an expression. Idiom it is. <laughs> J- jump to conclusion you have. <laughs> um. Well, anyway. Um, anyway, I feel you. It was definitely... One of those one of those movies where you're like, actually, y'all are wrong, and I really wish you would just say it because it drives me nuts. Yeah, we could get into analyzing Star Wars for the next thousand years. Um, but, but no. Yeah, but no. I, I think with, going back to just George, Marsha, fascinating story mm-hmm. uh, that I, I just hope to kind of share a little bit for both for Marsha's sake, because mm-hmm. I think she deserves 
that credit in our hearts yes. when we think about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also just for everyone, as kind of one of these, I don't know if it's a cautionary tale, but certainly I, for a lot of people out there like us mm-hmm. who work together and have a relationship, uh, it's important to recognize your partner's needs, you know, uh, how they relate to your own. Yeah. What what you can give up when you can give something up like uh, a relationship takes sacrifice mm-hmm. um to make work and you just got to kind of find that balance yeah. i don't know that's and a think, generic way of putting it but i think too that like as a culture we're starting to have a different opinion about that yeah like george is in the 80s right saying doing all this that's like height of You've got to make the most money. You have to yeah, be the sure. most successful. Sure. You know, that sort of thing. And now it's much more like, what's my work-life balance? What really matters? Yeah. And, like, they didn't even have... I don't feel like anyone was talking about that in the 80s. No. I could be wrong, but... But, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I don't. <laughs> maybe... I don't know, yeah. But maybe if they had had any of that type of mindset, it might have been easier for George to get... to kind of understand that his life had to be as much a priority as his work. Yeah. And now we kind of do feel that because we're like, what lasts? You know, the people around me last. Yeah, definitely. The job doesn't always last. So anyway. Yeah, we really love diving into Marsha and George yeah. and learning more about Star Wars, one of my favorite <laughs> franchises and stuff. So and hopefully you did, too. Please yeah. let us know what you thought. Um, we always love hearing from you. Our email is romance at iheartmedia.com. That's right. You can find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great, it's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at Radic Romance. Mm-hmm. And we love you and thank you so much for listening yeah. and spending your time with us today. We'll catch you next week. Yeah. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.